Welcome. You're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and tips from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or relationships to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts and we're learning more every day. Live better. Start now. Let's go. Hey, it's Ella. I'm so glad we're about to hang out. (laughs) When I'm sitting here behind the mic all by my little lonesome, I am thinking of you. I think of this as a conversation between the two of us. So anyway, hey, thanks. Glad you're here. I'm about to share with you Dr. Gregory Scott Brown, and his work speaks for itself. And this conversation is about a topic that I think is more important than even I realized. And at first glance, it might sound like it's about self-care, the way that we sort of see self-care portrayed in the media and on social media. And that is, you know, take time to yourself and put an eye mask on. And I was reading Dr. Brown's book called The Self-Healing Mind. He's a psychiatrist, by the way. And he just has this very fresh take on mental health, even on mental illness, and the role that he sees what he calls evidence-based self-care playing in preventative medicine. In other words, in guarding us against mental illness and mental health challenges. And his approach uses a combination of conventional treatments, medication and psychotherapy with what he calls the five pillars of self-care. And we get into those in the show, but they are breathing, breathing mindfully, sleep, spirituality, nutrition, and movement. Now, this conversation is not really a deep dive into those five pillars, but rather it's about why these matter in the first place. As someone who has never struggled with clinical depression or clinical anxiety or clinical mental illness, I think that I and many of you, I'm going to go out on a limb and say many of us opt out of mental health care, if you will. We opt ourselves out of mental health care because we are in what we consider a normal threshold of depression and anxiety and stress, etc. So if you're out there in the world and you're high functioning and you're busy and you're living your life and you're doing your job and you're maintaining all of those plates that you spin on a regular basis, it's very easy to just keep doing that day after day after day and then wonder sort of as a side note, why we feel low levels of anxiety a lot of the time or why we feel overwhelmed or why we feel stressed or why our belly is pooching out, which might very well be dinner last night, but it could also be high levels of cortisol that we are really getting used to and not understanding the damage that it is doing to our bodies. But really, I just wanted to challenge you before this chat with Dr. Brown to really think about how you feel during a typical day how you would describe how you feel overall, and how you are thinking about taking care of yourself. So taking care of yourself and those five sort of non-negotiables of sleep, nutrition, breath, spirituality, and movement, which are absolutely essential, right, for achieving mental health and having any chance at physical health. How are you thinking of those? And do you regard those as priorities that can be bumped to make room for others? Do you consider that type of, quote, self-care, self-indulgent? Does it feel selfish to you? 
If any of that rings true for you, I encourage you to listen to this episode with Dr. Brown with open ears and an open mind. And then if you want a lot more detail on how to support those five pillars of self-care in your life, then you can, of course, grab his book, The Self-Healing Mind, and I'll link to that in the show notes. Okay, here's Dr. Brown. Hey, you're on air with Ella, and I am joined today by Dr. Gregory Scott Brown. Dr. Brown, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Now, where are you today? So I am located in the Houston area. I kind of split my time between Houston and Austin, but I am a native Texan. And again, I'm just so excited to be joining you today. I'm thoroughly pumped. We are talking about something so important that needs to be talked about. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, Dr. Brown, could you tell everybody who you are and what you do? Yes. So I'm Dr. Gregory Scott Brown. I'm a board certified psychiatrist. I'm the director of a clinic called the Center for Green Psychiatry. Uh, I'm a mental health writer. I'm an author of the upcoming book, The Self-Healing Mind, an essential five-step practice for overcoming anxiety and depression and revitalizing your life. Okay, here's what I'm dying to talk to you about today. And a lot of this is in your book, The Self-Healing Mind. So congratulations on that. Dr. Brown, I have so many friends and I myself, we consider ourselves quite busy. Now we're not, we're no longer looking at busyness as a badge of honor. Okay, we're working on that. But when it comes to taking care of ourselves, sometimes that gets bumped in terms of priorities. What I find so compelling about your work is that you say that evidence-based self-care can and will make a big difference to our overall mental health and physical well-being. What do you mean by that? And what prompted you to write about this? Well, I'll tell you that it's an important topic and it's a question that a lot of people are asking uh, these days because self-care, I think Ella is really getting a bad rap. I mean, people hear the words self-care, they're thinking of the bubble baths and the spa dates and the fancy massages. And they're like, oh, let's get real. I don't really have time for all of that. Right. But it's important to keep in mind that self-care is more than that. Okay, so I think it's important that we not mischaracterize self-care as an elitist sport. And we really think of it as simple things like breath work, nutrition, uh, spirituality, moving our body. And we're not necessarily talking about joining a fancy gym or a meditation studio. These are simple things that we can do every single day. Uh, Ella, self-care is like the food that we eat, the air we breathe. It's the vital source that keeps us motivated and alive. As a psychiatrist, Dr. Brown, of course, you are working with mental illness. You are, that is your training. That is your background. But can you explain to us how you perceive the differences between mental illness and what you define as mental health? Right. I mean, that's a great question. I mean, so often when people hear the words mental health, the first things they think about are these diagnosable mental illnesses. So they think depression, anxiety, ADHD, PTSD. We know how important these topics are to talk about and to address. But what that might do is it might cause people who have never seen a therapist, never been diagnosed with a mental illness to think, okay, mental health is not really for me. It's for people who are, you know, going to see a psychiatrist or a therapist or have a clinical diagnosis. So I, I challenge everyone to think of mental health as a state of living with purpose, balance, contentment, and hope. I think that's a definition that's all inclusive and applies to the billions of people around the world, regardless of whether or not they've been diagnosed with a mental illness. 
I think this is so important. And I'm actually going to quote your words back to you because I think that this distinction is really useful, particularly I am somebody who has never suffered from say clinical depression or even um, diagnosable levels of anxiety. And yet, of course, I deal with anxiety probably literally every day of my life. And you're saying you might be opting out of the mental illness category, but that does not opt anyone out of wanting to take care of their mental health. You say many of us will never meet the diagnostic criteria for these diseases, but some of us still live with unhappiness, loneliness, disconnection, and a lack of purpose. I would argue that almost like everybody, right? These conditions you say can influence the quality of our lives just as much as a diagnosed mental illness. Mm -hmm. I think we underplay that. I think we think that it is totally normal to be stressed all of the time to be not taking care of ourselves, to trade sleep for other priorities and to trade our nutrition. I mean, I'm, I'm, I am not pointing fingers unless they're all pointed at me. I, I make these exchanges all the time. And I believe, cause I'm conditioned to think this, that that's what being a productive person in society looks like. Uh, that sounds a lot like me, Ella. So when I was in my early twenties, I was an oboist studying music at the Juilliard School in New York. And at the time, again, what I I had no idea what self-care was. It didn't even resonate with me, that term. And so my life consisted of practice, 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 work, 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 seven days a week. There were no nights. There were no weekends. There were no holidays. And after two years of that, I essentially burned out. There is no real medical definition or consistent way of defining burnout. But I'll say that in many cases, burnout is the tip of the iceberg that so many of us experience that can actually lead to more serious mental illnesses like depression if we don't pay attention to it early on. Why isn't traditional medicine positioned to talk to us about self-care, Dr. Brown? Well, you know, I think that a lot of it has to do with what we expect from traditional medicine. So even um, many of my patients think, no, I'm an integrative psychiatrist. They know I've written this book. They know that I champion the self-care. But I think oftentimes what they consider the things that will work the best are the medications, right? Uh, They want something that they can take every day that's going to make them feel better quickly. And they don't necessarily view self-care as an evidence-based practice. They don't necessarily view it as something that can work with the medications or just as effectively as the medications. So uh, I think it, you know, it has to do with the way that doctors speak with their patients and the expectations that patients have from their doctor. I'm going to share a story with you that I suspect is one that's very familiar to you. And I want to share this because I think so many of my podcast fam will relate to this, Dr. Brown. I was recently having a conversation with a friend. She's in her 40s. She's super busy. She has, you know, really robust career. She's a wife. She's a parent. She would love to take care of herself and, you know, invest in her own physical well-being uh, with her time and her energy. And the conversation that we were having was so interesting to me because getting some nutrition in a day, taking five minutes a day to just breathe. Uh I'm not even talking about meditating. I'm just talking about breathing, Um, (laughs) like intentional breathing and or sleeping for an appropriate number of hours felt like optional Mm -hmm. self-indulgent activities. How do you help people reframe these fundamental things we should be doing and stop looking at them as self-indulgent? 
Well, I think we first have to acknowledge how when we don't take care of ourselves, when we ignore self-care, we have to acknowledge how we feel. Okay. And we have to make that connection. So when someone is not paying attention to the quality of their sleep or they're prioritizing working as many hours in a day as they can or family life, right? Uh, Obligations to our spouses and our, our kids. I mean, it can feel like sometimes we just don't have enough time for anything. But again, as a, as a practicing psychiatrist, I can tell you that I work with patients every single week who are in those exact same situations. And after a year, two years, three years of doing just that, you know, considering self-care as this self-indulgent thing, neglecting it, you know, they're sitting in my office or sitting across from me with symptoms of major depression. In some cases, suicidal thoughts, in some cases, anxiety that's so severe that they're not even able to leave their home. And so I think that if we're able to make the connection, developing that insight, that's the first step to unwinding that uh, toxic way of thinking. Well, first of all, I'm so glad that integrative psychiatrists exist. Yeah. One of the reasons this is so important to me, integrative medicine, functional medicine, integrative psychiatry, as you say, is using the same anecdote. My friend just had this experience too. She went to her physician and her primary care physician did not ask her a single question about Mm -hmm. what she was eating, did not ask her a single question about her lifestyle, did not ask her a single question about her sleep. So, I mean, and that's one of the reasons, Ella, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book the self-healing mind. I mean, there's so many reasons why I wrote it, but that's definitely one of them. Like I, I understand many people, very few people who are actually struggling with their mental health will have an opportunity to meet with a psychiatrist. I would say even a smaller percentage of people who are struggling will have an opportunity to meet with an integrative psychiatrist. And so, I mean, writing this book is a way that I can communicate and really get this message out there. So anyone who's reading the book can understand that there are simple strategies that all of us can do at home, no matter how busy we are, no matter how much money we have or don't have, no matter how big our families are, that can actually start to help us live closer to that life of purpose, balance, contentment, and hope, and ultimately improve our mental health. Well, let's get some of those definitions on the table, because to your point, it doesn't matter what kind of insurance you carry, you can practice self-care. Yeah, I mean, we should do another podcast about that. I mean, that that's a big issue in mental health. You know, something as simple as as breath. So we take 20 to 30,000 breaths every single day, Ella, and there are different ways that we can manipulate our breath for producing different effects, right? So if anyone has done yoga before, there's a specific type of breath work called Ujjayi Pranayama, which sounds like it's this juju or woo-woo medicine with no evidence. But I'll tell you that with Ujjayi Pranayama, what you're doing is you're creating some resistance in the back of your throat. You're kind of compressing the glottis, like you're putting uh, a thumb over the water hose when you breathe. It's an audible breath. Now, science actually supports when we create resistance in our breathing, then what we're doing is we're compressing two long nerves that run down the side of our neck called the vagus nerves. And that is great for activating something called the parasympathetic nervous system. When the parasympathetic nervous system is activated, that lowers your heart rate, it lowers your blood pressure. In some cases, it can increase 
a neurotransmitter in the brain called GABA, which helps us relax. These are, again, that's just one of many ways that we can manipulate our breath. The important thing is that we understand evidence-based ways of implementing these self-care techniques. Let's get all five of the pillars of self-care on the table. They are, as you say, breath, Mm -hmm. sleep, spirituality, nutrition, and movement. You say that these five pillars of self-care are essential for achieving mental health. You go so far as to say, and this is what I love, self-care truly is the original form of preventative medicine. And you've just shared with us when these, when any of these pillars go ignored, then someone can end up in your office asking for a pill in very dire straits. And what I hear you say, I think, Dr. Brown, is that if we are able to focus on these five cornerstones, these five pillars of health, that we can even prevent the escalation of actual physical physical conditions. Is that right? That is, that's totally right. I mean, you have to consider too, when you and I were born, Prozac didn't exist. I mean, Prozac is relatively new. I mean, the Prozac revolution boom of the nineties, you know, was, was great for medicine. Like I, I don't by any means disavow medications and current treatments and therapy. I prescribe medications in my clinic every single week. I am a staunch advocate for people getting access to therapy. But when I talk about the original form of of medicine, um, especially for mental health, I mean, these are techniques that have been practiced for thousands and thousands of years that uh, precede the advent of most of the medications that we have. And so I think that a comprehensive approach, the best approach when it comes to saving your mental health and preventing your mental health from getting worse would be to use the best resources we have. In some cases, it's just self-care. In other cases, it's medications plus therapy plus self-care. But whatever your situation is, it would not be beneficial to to disavow or to undermine the importance of self-care. Let's talk about how living in modern times is creating a need for us to be educated in this manner in the first place. You shared a term with me that I'd never heard before, and I might even pronounce it wrong. Allostatic overload? Yeah, allostatic overload. So that goes back to this idea of our our bodies living uh, in harmony, in balance. And so when we are pushing ourselves too much, I mean, you have to consider allostatic overload relates to the, the stress response. And so when we're pushing ourselves too hard, when we're burned out, we wouldn't notice it. But if someone were to take our labs, you might notice an increase in cortisol uh, levels or other stress-related hormones. Um, You might experience things like brain fog. You might even experience uh, a dip in productivity or more irritability or just feeling wired and tired, right? So part of a self-care approach, an evidence-based self-care approach would be to figure out how we can use the five pillars of self-care to bring ourselves back into a state um, of balance. Yeah. And part of my goal, Dr. Brown, in this conversation is just to share with everybody that that thing that we've come to experience as almost normal Mm -hmm. isn't. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it doesn't, it does certainly doesn't have to be. Um, It's easy for us to say, you know, I I don't need self-care. I need a nanny or I need a better job, you know, or I need a spouse who's going to be more supportive, but what we can do is we can manipulate our breath. We can focus on sleep. We can focus on moving our body, even if it means just some simple stretches in a chair or a walk every day. I mean, all of these simple strategies have tons of evidence to support uh, our mental health. 
Okay, well, we'll start getting to some more of the resolution for this. But to recap, what you're saying is allostatic overload is simply a medical term, or at least a more technical term for feeling that feeling of overwhelm or just completely stressed out. And what I understand is that being in that state chronically can actually put your body into an inflammatory state. That, that's absolutely right. So uh, science is suggesting that most modern uh, lifestyle illnesses like obesity, hypertension, you know, are related to being in a state of chronic inflammation. Now, we're also learning more about the fact that many mental illnesses like major depressive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, for example, are also related to being in a chronic state of inflammation. So when we talk about something like nutrition, which is one of the self-care pillars, studies have shown that introducing more anti-inflammatory foods into our diet. Now, this is not about diet shaming or food shaming or telling people they need to revamp everything that they eat. It's just about making our diet more anti-inflammatory. Maybe that means dropping some chia seeds in a smoothie or putting some a handful of pumpkin seeds on your salad or focusing on eating two servings of salmon or tuna a week, right? And if you don't do that, you know, I talk in the book about ways that we might be able to get omega-3s from, from supplements, but it's starting where you can and focusing on these small ways that you can focus on self-care. Hey, today's episode is still brought to you by me. I am not doing ads. As I've said on previous episodes this season, I am only doing testimonials. Now I'm going to keep today's really short and I'll tell you more about it in future episodes, but I just want to share with you who I'm going to for my vitamins and my supplements. This is a world where I started off with Mary Ruth's Organics. They are a California-based family-owned business. I started off with them when I started this podcast. I started taking their liquid vitamins, okay? Then as as I went through the podcast years and I interviewed so many health experts, I just started buying supplements just absolutely willy-nilly. Just willy-nilly. If they said it worked for anything, I bought it, okay? So $5,000 later, I have thrown away all of the supplements that I don't even know what they do, and I have reverted back to my extremely simple routine. Now, I'm not going to go into detail. I will share more in future episodes, but I am reverting back to Mary Ruth Organics liquid daytime vitamins and liquid nighttime vitamins. And I've added a few of their gummy vitamins into my rotation. Frankly, gummies are just fun to eat, but I find myself taking those much more readily than swallowing supplements. Again, they're not paying me to say this. I am just here to tell you what I'm finding is working and I am so much happier. I don't feel guilty when I open my supplement cabinet because I no longer have a supplement cabinet and my nails are really strong. I judge how my vitamins are working by what my nails look like and I'm feeling good. So I'll share a link. I'm sure I can get some sort of discount sorted for you, but just here to say still loving and still swearing by Mary Ruth's Organics. Okay, back to Dr. Brown. One more medically related question about this. Could you share a little bit about the role of cortisol and why chronically raised cortisol could be chipping away at our health over the long term? Right. So cortisol is a hormone that's related to our stress response. 
right? So our body tends to produce more cortisol when we are chronically stressed, when we're stressed to begin with, but when we are not experiencing chronic stress, the cortisol levels will uh, fall back to where they should be. And I'll say in chronic stress, those cortisol levels, along with other stress hormones, just stay in this perpetual state uh, of elevation. Now, long-term that can lead to a whole host of physical conditions like, like weight gain, uh, for example, make it more difficult to lose weight, but it's also tightly coupled with mental uh, illnesses like anxiety and depression as well. So there's so, uh, some supplements out there that focus on reducing cortisol levels, but I would say anything that can reduce emotional stress, whether it's, you know, meditation or uh, moving our body, or again, incorporating more anti-inflammatory foods could potentially uh, reduce cortisol levels as well. Yeah. And this is just one more thing I wanted to highlight lifestyle wise. So many people, Dr. Brown, they express this frustration about how they sort of feel like they're not in control of what their body's doing anymore. And oftentimes we blame it on age and we forget to look at are we breathing? Are we sleeping? Do we feel whole in our spiritual life? Are we adding nutrition? Are we getting enough nutrition, not calories, not food, nutrition, nutrient density and movement. I think what I'm hearing you say is that at least give these five pillars a go first. (laughs) Of course, the severity, everything's on a spectrum. Of course, there could be things that require more in-depth attention. But if we're ignoring these pillars, then those might be a good place to start. Is that fair? That is totally, that is totally fair. I mean, so many of my patients that you know, by the time they come to see me, and I'll I'll be honest here, I mean, many of them have, you know, tried six or seven different antidepressants. Uh, Some of them know the uh, psychotherapies, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, so well that they could teach a course on it, but they still feel stuck. And oftentimes what I find that is missing is the attention to self-care, but it's also important to note, Ella, that paying attention to self-care the right way, So doing it in a way that is supported by evidence gives you the best opportunity to living optimally. Philosophically, how does one pursue evidence-based self-care? Everyone listening has probably heard someone at some point say to them, when you're anxious, just breathe, just take some deep breaths. And I don't know about you, but when someone tells me that, it just annoys me to tears. I mean, everyone knows that that will just make you even more anxious, right? Yeah, it feels Um, like you're being told to take a bubble bath. (laughs) It feels like you're being told to take a bubble bath, right? That's not going to solve anything. But the important thing to realize, again, uh, there's several different ways of of breathing. So another uh, method that's been shown to be effective that's supported by science is a longer exhale than an inhale. Uh, One of the methods that I talk about in the book is 478 breathing that has been popularized by um, Dr. Andrew Whale. He's an integrative psychiatrist in in Arizona. So inhale for four, hold for seven, exhale for eight. That's a great way, again, of activating that parasympathetic nervous system. I would say that a lot of people, when it comes to self-care, they're thinking about the bubble baths, they're thinking about just breathe, they're thinking someone's home, just sleep, but I can't sleep. Um, and that's where people tend to get stuck. 
Yes. And I want to be super clear to everyone listening that your book goes into detail. Detail. Yes. Breathing, sleeping strategies. You talk about spirituality. You talk about nutrition. You talk about movement. So you have tactics and strategies galore in there. Let's talk about why this works for a moment. And I want to talk about resilience and active coping and sort of lay the table with some of these definitions. Why we've talked about neuroplasticity on this show before, Dr. Brown. Can you help us understand why the fact that neuroplasticity exists mm-hmm. and we're capable of it, why is that good news for us in this realm? So it means that we're not totally predetermined by our genetics, um, but we can actually change the way that our genes are expressed. You know, something like trauma, PTSD, for example, there are some genes that have been found to be associated with the likelihood of someone who experiences trauma for developing post-traumatic stress disorder. But that doesn't mean that if someone doesn't have those certain genes that they're automatically going to develop it because there are things that we can do, the things that we can do. Our environment has an effect on our genes. And I think it's important to realize that many of us have a lot more power than we think we do. I'm a big fan of discovering where we actually have more control or influence than we think that we might. And I think that this is huge because obviously some people are more prone to anxiety. Some people are more, more prone to just react in a high stress mode. Right. I am short of patience. Yeah. (laughs) I'd like to think it's genetic. What you're saying is genes aside, we can actually manage how they express themselves. I was just interviewing someone recently who said how we think about aging, what we believe to be true about aging can actually impact our gene expression as we age. You are connecting the dots for us and telling us that we can learn behaviors and controls and measures that actually help us cope with the things we might be prone to naturally, such as high anxiety, stress, depression, the list goes on. And I'll talk about this in physical terms too, because I think this, when it comes to physical health, something like cigarette smoking, for example, can change certain types of DNA methylation. I mean, it can change the way our genes behave that might increase a person's risk for developing lung cancer. But then if that same person stops smoking, studies also show that in time, they might be able to change their their genes again to actually reduce their risk for getting lung cancer in time back to what it would have been if they never started smoking in the first place. So what we do to our body, um, our environment, breath work, going to therapy, addressing our mental health, even if we don't have the quote unquote resiliency genes might allow us to uh, live in a way that would be comparable um, to a person who did have those genes. I did not know there were resiliency genes. Can you tell me more about that? So uh, COMT, neuropeptide Y, certain serotonin uh, transporters are thought, again, specifically when it comes to PTSD, to be considered some of these resiliency genes that might, again, prevent one person's risk for developing PTSD if they experience a trauma versus someone else. So again, you don't necessarily have to have that in order not to uh, develop PTSD. And there are things that we can all do about it. Yeah, no, in fact, I understand from your work that resiliency is a skill that you can actually forge over time and that self-care plays an integral role in building that kind of competency. 
So one of the ways we can do that is by active coping. And this is something that I learned when writing the book. I mean, many of us, when we hear about coping, we do think about those self-indulgent things like bubble baths. I had a hard day. You just get in the bath with a glass of wine and just relax so I can then go and face whatever stressor caused me to have a hard day. Right, or screw the bath, just give me the wine. Right, right, right. <laughs> is that active coping? That's <laughs> not active coping, that's <laughs> passive coping because the problem is still there. It's still there. And so by active coping, basically, I mean, when you talk about coping, Ella, you're thinking of anything that we're doing to help make a, a stressful situation more tolerable. But the thing about active coping is whatever the underlying challenges, again, we can't always do this. I, I get it. Whatever the underlying stressor is, is there a way that we might be able to take that challenge on head on, right? So if we're in an undesirable work situation, might a conversation with our supervisor be a form of active coping. I mean, so many times I work with patients and there's just an underlying fear of talking to their boss or talking to their kids or doing what they need to do to move forward. And after three, four, five weeks of therapy, we find out, okay, what, what is the fear? How can we address it? How can we learn to cope in an active way? And they find that they don't need those self-indulgent activities anymore because they actually are able to reframe their environment to begin with. What is a definition of active coping? So active coping would mean that we are taking our challenges, facing our challenges head on, you know, rather than hoping that they magically go away, which in most cases they won't. We are finding out what we need to do to actually move forward with our lives. And I find that a lot of times, again, the biggest barrier to that is some sort of fear. Fear is standing in our way. And so working through that can be quite useful for people. Okay. So it's about being deliberate, intentional exactly. about the way we face challenges. Exactly. Exactly. It's, yeah. Okay. I want to pick on one more pillar before we wrap up Dr. Brown. And that is movement because mm -hmm. this is an ongoing dialogue that we have here on air with Ella and yeah. I come from a world, I'm, I'm recovering, okay? Mm -hmm. But I come from a world where movement was a soft word and you worked out because you were trying to change your body and it was a thing you had to do. And then I moved into a world where I actually found a sport that I loved and exercise became training, became fun mm -hmm. and purpose-oriented for me. It took me many decades to realize that movement matters and that it needn't be 90 minutes on my bike or an hour at the gym. You you don't need me because that is absolutely right. That is absolutely right. I mean, I spend so much time making this distinction and I was, I was very deliberate in the book, not to say exercise. What we're talking about is moving our body. Okay. I've noticed that during the pandemic, I slowed down a lot more and I was going on a lot more walks than runs. And evidence supports that things like that are great for our mental health. There was a big study that came out several years ago, and they found that people who just move their bodies more, regardless of age, were at a reduced risk for developing depression. The European Psychiatric Association actually has recommendations about movement that are similar to what the American Heart Association has in the United States. The important thing to keep in mind is just moving our body is, is what's beneficial for mental health.
Yeah, I, I mean, we could do an entire show on this. I think movement begets exercise for many people because right. once it gets you in your body and if you can just focus on movement, I think sometimes fitness can ensue. I too, like you, really started walking a lot during the pandemic. And I used to think that walking was for the elderly or the infirm. <laughs> but I mean, what it does, it allows us to slow down. It allows us to pay attention to our environment. It's a mindful activity. Yeah. And again, exercise is a word that stresses a lot of people out. You know, like I don't have time for that, or they pressure themselves to meet a certain level of, of, of exercise. What the evidence supports is moving our body. So many of us these days are living uh, a sedentary lifestyle. And because of that, we're feeling tired. We're feeling experiencing brain fog. We're feeling anxious. And so just moving a little bit more can, can definitely help with that. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for this book. Thank you so much for the many strategies that people who are interested can deep dive into your book. Um, obviously, I will link to all of that for everyone. But before I let you go, what is one shareable resource, something that you are loving right now in your life? You know, I, I really like the, the Insight Timer app. They have a lot of free offerings on there. One of the things that I like about it um, are the Yoga Nidra offerings. So Yoga Nidra, it's a type of yoga that can be great for insomnia. It, now, it's not the type of practice that you're going to be standing on your head or doing your downward facing dogs, lying on your back. It's a meditative practice. Um, but I think that's a, a really good app for anyone who's interested in learning how to get started with meditation or mindfulness or Yoga Nidra. Insight Timer app. I will share that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. I've got it myself and I love it. Dr. Brown, thank you. Where would you like people to find you? So you can learn more about my work at my website at gregoryscottbrown.com. Hopefully everyone can check out the book and share it with as many of your friends and family members as you can. Yeah, I know someone I'm buying it for today. <laughs> that is great. That's great. Thank you, Ella. Okay, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, find me on Instagram at onairwithella or get the show notes and links at onairella.com. There's no with. It's just onairella.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for sharing the show. And thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.